Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard the cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up, up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What am I to say to them? God says, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with the, all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. 
and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Amen. This morning in Exodus chapter 3, as was just read for us, God continues His mission uh, with His Redeemer. He meets Him and commissions Him this morning. We're on God's mission today. And so, therefore, we can learn similar lessons about God and His mission, but also, hopefully, have our faith and our obedience in Him increased because of how God is going to minister to Moses here in this story. Uh, Three things. In God's mission, He approaches us. In God's mission, He commissions us. And in God's mission, He provides for us. In the first nine verses, which could be a sermon unto itself, we see in God's mission, He approaches us. And firstly, we note that God initiates relationships. Uh, Moses here in the first couple of verses is simply continuing his trade in Midian with Jethro the priest as a shepherd of the flock of sheep. Here in the verse two verses, the first phrase in verse two says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. I think that's very significant. All of this is God's idea. Creation. The relationship that he establishes with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The the ministry that Moses is going to have to the people of Israel. The transformation of Moses' calling simply of a, a shepherd of a flock of sheep to a shepherd of people. It's not Moses' idea. And Moses doesn't start a relationship with the Lord. But God starts it. God initiates everything that has to do with His relationship to us. Just like He did with Moses. He doesn't uh, do anything because He needs to, not because He needs anything, but so He can spread His glory, His love, and His mercy. We see this initiation uh, acted out every Sunday in our call to worship, the very flow of our liturgy. It starts with God, by His Word, calling us into His presence. He initiates. You've experienced it, hopefully, as you reflect back on your own conversion. From, from your mind's eye, you initiated and you started everything, but what the Bible tells us is He actually initiated through His Holy Spirit. Because if He doesn't initiate with us, we're never going to want Him. We're never going to want to believe. We're never going to have enough faith. We're never going to repent enough. He chose to create you. He chose to love you. And you have responded to His love. 
just like Moses is going to. This will be very, very clear and apparent and necessary in a moment, but uh, the rest of verse 2 into verse 5 highlights not simply that God initiates relationships, but He also warns of His holiness. He wants a relationship, enough to initiate it, but He is a holy God. In His initiation, He condescends to Moses by appearing as an angel in a flame of fire in a bush, beckons Moses to come near, but then says in verse 5, do not Come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The commentator Alec Mateer points out the idea of holiness can mean separate. So this is the creator. This is not another creature. Which is why the bush is not consumed in the flames. He's different. The fire obviously implies danger, as Moses has to come near, but not too close. Then he has to take off his sandals. It's holy ground. Again, Matir says, while the verses do not say that the Lord is holy, they imply that holiness is where the Lord is. An unassisted humankind cannot approach Him. Holiness endangers the sinner because the holiness of the Lord is not a passive attribute, but an active force. It punishes sin. It doesn't tolerate evil or injustice. It's deadly against sin. We recognize the flame in many ways. Genesis chapter 3, what happens when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden? Flaming sword protects the Garden of Eden. It was a smoking fire pot and flame in Genesis 15 that symbolized God making a covenant with Abram. God is holy. He is other. He's not another creature to be convinced or manipulated or initiated with. He's dangerous. And He's not only holy, but, but, but God calls His people to holiness themselves. Right in this interchange, God is essentially saying to Moses, I'm holy, and you have to be holy i.e., you have to obey me. This is how this is going to work. I'm God. I'm Lord. I'm your creator. I can tell you what to do with your life, and you need to obey me for your life's sake, which is going to be emblematic of the rest of the book of Exodus, the entire old covenant and even the new covenant. He is holy. Moses is a sinner, like the rest of us. There has to be some kind of accommodation for us to have this relationship with God. He has to condescend. He has to accommodate or deal with our sin, but He still wants us to have a relationship. But thirdly, verses 6 to 9, in this approaching of Moses. He comforts his people. There's several ways God comforts Moses in verses 6 to 9. After this seemingly terrifying introduction, he actually identifies himself. Moses had already said, here I am. And then God says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And the end of verse 6 doesn't seem to be very comforting because Moses cowers and hides and doesn't make eye contact. But it's because Moses knows who he's dealing with. He knows the reverence and awe that is due to this person or individual or deity because he's now identified himself. I'm your father's God. I'm the God of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the one who made the covenant with Abram. This is the one who has created the heavens and the earth. And what he's about to call Moses to do is actually his own mission. Because he's drawing again this connection between what is about to happen through Moses with the Egyptians. But to say, this is a continuation of my mission, Moses. It's not your mission. It's not on your shoulders. It's up to me. But it's, it's interesting, too, in verses 7 to 9... The, the, the comfort that comes up, it's almost a repeating of what we saw last week as Exodus chapter 2 ended that the suffering of God's people has not gone unnoticed. He recognizes, he hears, he sees, uh, he knows what the Egyptians are doing to his people. That's how we ended. But here we have a little bit of a repeat. But it's interesting, at the end of verse 7, there's a little bit of a difference between English translations. Uh, the NIV, it reads like this, I'm concerned about their suffering, which we should take that to heart as, as, as meaningful. But the, the ESV is a little simpler, and it just says this, I know their sufferings. I think that's serious. That's actually how the Hebrew reads that the word yada, to know, is what's used here. He's, he's not simply concerned about you. He knows your sufferings. Almost to the point that he himself is affected and afflicted by our own afflictions. That's how serious God is taking this relationship that he's initiated where he is so holy and yet he wants to have a relationship with a sinner like Moses and work with the people who are unable to offer anything in return except unbelievable suffering. The responses I know. I know deeply the sufferings of my people. And again, the narrative progresses where he says now he's going to deliver them and provide a land. God comes toward us in relationship, but he is still holy. He condescends, showing us how much he wants a relationship with us. He wants to deal with our sin to make that possible, he knows the suffering of his people intimately. Moses needs to take that to heart. And so do we, as we see the narrative 
progresses where God in His mission is going to commission us. But like Moses, as God commissions us, we're going to have to recognize that we in ourselves are insufficient to do what He asks. Verses, uh, verse 10 gives us the commission where God lets Moses know, hey, you're the deliverer. I'm going to be sending you to Pharaoh, to Egypt. And we don't have to actually wonder how Moses reacted to such a startling statement because the next verse tells us exactly, boy, I can relate to this. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, having already read chapters 1 and 2, we might argue, who else would it be, Moses? You grew up in the house. But right there, there's this honesty of saying, who am I? You want me to go to the most powerful man in the world and say, let, let all the slaves free, let them go? What? Verse 13 there's another startling question. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? He's not really building a great resume for being a redeemer and a deliverer. He's basically admitting his insufficiency over and over again. I'm not the guy, and I don't know what to say. Uh, one of my professors, uh, Jay Sklari, points out, it seems humble, but it actually is fear and insecurity. His focus is on himself, which shows his, his spiritual immaturity. Well, you're, you're the one who initiated a relationship with, with me, God. You're, you're so holy I can't wear shoes in front of you. You're telling me I'm the Redeemer? I can't be. Well, in a sense, he's never been more right that anyone in that situation should have responded likewise. It would have been better if we'd seen a little more obedience and trust in the Lord. But in a sense, who, who should stand before the Lord and say, I'm actually pretty good. I'm equipped. I can help you, God, on your mission. We've already said he's holy. He's the creator of the universe. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to do anything. But he asks. And he points out here that we, like Moses, and whatever we've been called to do are insufficient. That takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of recognition that to have another response is probably to not really see our own sin, to think that we're good enough. But here's the point. We're not sufficient. He is. God's going to prove to Moses he actually is sufficient, and that's going to make all the difference. God, uh, his first answer has two parts. Uh, in verse 12, remember Moses said, who am I? God's response in verse 12 is, but I will be with you. There's, there's things in my life I want to go away. 
that I want to stop, that I don't want to have to deal with. And I say to God, who am I? And he doesn't say, fine, I'll make it go away. But he says, I'll be with you. I will be with you. We saw this in Joshua 1.9. Later on in the story, God will say to Joshua, Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That should reverberate in Moses' heart to say, You mean you're not sending me by myself? You mean you're not sending me to Moses without you? Of course not. I will be with you. The second part is that God is going to give Moses a sign he says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. A sign can be a future ratification or confirmation of something said or done earlier. This was seen in Genesis 17 when God gave Abram the sign of circumcision. Why do we have to have these tangible signs? It's because we have a weak faith. We could be in front of God ourselves and Him tell us something and we say, yeah, I don't believe you. All I see is my horrifying circumstances. I don't believe you. The impossible is to go to Pharaoh and ask for him to let the people go. I don't believe you. And God says, I'm going to give you a sign that when you get out of Egypt, you're going to come right back here and worship me on this mountain. Guess what? That's what happens. But this is very, this is very counterintuitive, this sign. Uh, going to this mountain will not be directly on the way to Canaan as even Pharaoh will recognize in chapter 14, verse 3. As the uh, Israelites are leaving uh, Egypt and they cross the Red Sea, they, they don't go straight to Canaan. If, if in your mind's eye you can picture Cairo and Egypt and picture going to modern-day Israel, they go not northeast. They go southeast into the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. The sign is counterintuitive. It will cause a, a rupturing of God's people's faith in Him because they're going to be crying and moaning and complaining. In Exodus chapters 15, 16, and 17, Moses, why, didn't you, why did you take us here? We should go back to Egypt. We want meat. We want water. Why did you do this, Moses? They almost rebel against Him. But God is sufficient and says, Moses, you're going to have this sign. And it's not going to make sense to you because I'm going to want you to trust me. I'm taking you into the wilderness so you will know that I am sufficient in who I am. Now, the second answer to Moses in verse 14 is, I am who I am. Say, I am has sent you. So God answers the question, I don't know what to say. What am I going to say when they say, who sent me? God says, I'm going to tell you what to say. I'll give you the words. I will equip you. I'm sufficient. I am has sent you. And then he says to tell the Israelites, this is the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is his name forever. God gives Moses the words to say when he doesn't know what to say, but it's based on who he is. And again, Dr. Chris Wright points out this phrase, I am who I am. It's two phrases, in a sense, that has a present and a future translation. Or interpretation. Why does that matter? Well, you could also translate it, I am now what I will be forever. Or, I will be forever what I am now. Meaning, I'm not going to change, Moses. 
my love for you, my promise, my commitment, I'm not going to change. You're going to have to have faith. You're going to have to trust me. This should encourage Moses and us to face anything because God doesn't change. That's his name. It never will change. It is forever because he is eternal. The covenant that he makes with his people is eternal. Again, one of my professors, Jay Sklar, points to Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Death, persecution, suffering, unanswered questions. Moses, where's the trust? Of course you're insufficient to face any of those things, especially by yourself. I'm going to go with you, and I'm sufficient. Where's the trust? Is it in our circumstances? Is it in an unknown future? Is it in a man-made government? Is it in politics? Is it in our money? Is it in our wealth? Is it, is, is it in our, our vocation? All insufficient. God says to Moses, I'm going to ask immeasurable in this commission of you, but I'm going with you, and I'm sufficient. And my promises are eternal. They don't change. Sometimes we get too focused on gifts or or education, which obviously are great things given by God. Those aren't sufficient. The one who gives them to us is sufficient, and we can't confuse the two. Neither can Moses. But finally, in God's mission, he actually provides for us. Verses 16 and 17 uh, literally tell us that He gives us a promise. What is that promise? Verse 17, I promise that I will give, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. Moses, my promise is that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. You need to go forward in this commission. You need to stop thinking about who you are and what you're going to say, and you need to focus on who I am and what I say I'm going to do, and this is what I'm providing for you. I'm providing for you a promise that you can take to the bank. I'm providing you a promise that will be fulfilled. Well, it was. It was. That's, that's the promise. God is going to do and accomplish what he says he's going to do. Nothing can stop it, not even Pharaoh, not even the insufficiency of his servant Moses can stop it, because that's God's promise. But then, finally, he also provides a plan. Verses 18 to 22 basically record God telling Moses the plan of how everything is going to work and what can be described as simply a string of miracles 
I mean, the people will obey him, will follow Moses out of Egypt to sacrifice to God in the wilderness on that mountain. God will strike uh, Egypt so that they will be released. God will provide uh, jewelry, uh, clothing, everything that the people are going to need for this journey in the wilderness. He's, this is the whole plan laid out, isn't it? Moses, follow it. Follow me. Trust me. But see, we, we know what happens, right? So he doesn't actually give every single detail of the plan. There's no mention of a plague. There's no mention of the parting of the Red Sea. God says to Moses, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, but you have to trust me for the rest. I'm not going to give you everything. I'm your God. I'm going to provide for you whatever I think you need. That's going to be enough you're going to see the details worked out in my plan. But I'm not going to tell you all of it in advance. There are going to be immense difficulties of faith after the Red Sea is parted for these Israelites. But God, to his leader, assures him, this will happen. This is my promise, and my plan will unfold. But you might be thinking, I don't know the plan for X, Y, and Z in my own life. I'd like to know the plan. I'd like to know if that promise is going to be kept. We have more insight into the plan than Moses did. We know more of what's going to happen simply after the Exodus than Moses does. And speaking of the coming Messiah, Isaiah 53, 3 says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's acquainted with grief. Can also be translated, he knows pain. Yada. This Messiah will know suffering. He will know my suffering. He will know your suffering. Isaiah continues in 63, 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. He knows he's affected by the affliction of his own people. Why? Because Isaiah 7, 17 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a, a sign, a better sign, a bigger sign than worshiping on Mount Horeb. What's this sign? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. How do you translate Emmanuel from the Hebrew? God with us. God has commissioned us to obey Him. He's initiated a relationship with us, but He has accommodated our sin by taking care of our sin through the death of Jesus on the cross, who has now sent us His Spirit because He's with us wherever we go. He's with us. We're insufficient, but He is sufficient, and He's with us. He wants a relationship with us. He sends us out to this world to obey Him regardless of the costs, but He's already paid for the ultimate cost on the cross. So therefore, brothers and sisters, walk out of here with faith and obedience and trust. Let us pray.
Lord Christ, even as I speak those words, you know my own frailty and what I face in this life. I pray for my own sake that you would help me to believe those things, but not based on my circumstances or the amount of faith and repentance that I can muster, but based on how you have shown your love for me and your sheep by dying on the cross, Lord Jesus, having been raised for our justification, increased our faith that it might one day become sight. Christ, then we pray. Amen. Because also...